I'm Sarah Elizabeth Smith, and this is the Theosophia Podcast, a platform for women's voices in theology. If you appreciate this women's empowerment podcast, consider donating on our Patreon page. You can support us with as little as $2 a month, which is kind of like buying me a really cheap beer once a month. Pretty easy, right? This week on the podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking with the newest female Episcopal priest in Oklahoma. Reverend Aaron Jean Ward serves as the rector of St. Luke's in Ada, Oklahoma. She received her bachelor's in English and creative writing from Troy University in Troy, Alabama, and her master's of divinity from the Seminary of the Southwest in Austin, Texas. Aaron and I talk about her unchurched path to ordination, what sacraments mean to her, and how she understands priesthood as storytelling. Y'all are going to love this one. Here's Aaron. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with me. Hi. I'm so honored and delighted. And you are new to Oklahoma. You are a new priest, which I'm super stoked about because there's not a ton of female priests in Oklahoma. Well, here we are, right? I'm excited to be here. Like three and a half months solid. Yeah. Do you know how many female priests there are in Oklahoma? Um, I do not know. I know a few, but I just haven't been here long enough. Yeah. Well, so you came from Texas. You're in Dallas. I was in Dallas, Waco, and Austin, but originally I'm from Alabama, which is probably something you can hear when I speak. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Alabama. I was there for 22 years, mm-hmm. did all of my through high school time in Montgomery. And mm-hmm. then I went to Troy University in South Alabama. And then from there I went to seminary and I went to seminary in Austin. And that's how I started my nine year streak as a Texan. Wow. But you were like a Southern woman through and through. Oh yeah. I mean, you can't take that out of you. No. Once you got it, you got it. Were you like an Alabama fan growing up, like Roll Tide? Yes. I like to say that in Alabama, you pick your team before your denomination. (laughs) So like you're just, you're born and you're like, okay, Alabama or Auburn. And then you can start church shopping. (laughs) So I was raised up Roll Tide and I, which is something that I've just told people in Oklahoma, I'm just going to pretend like I don't like sports because it's so (laughs) controversial to even say that. I probably shouldn't be saying this in a public setting. (laughs) Roll Tide. Oh yeah. I get how to nail polish of all sorts of things oh my god that's yeah that's awesome and then there was no like episcopal seminary in alabama so was austin like the closest place or why'd you pick that one um technically sewanee is the closest place oh yes outside of nashville but um i don't know austin is super fun and when i visited it i just felt like somebody had created like a town or a city out of my, my heart. Like Mm. it was just fun and laid back and beautiful and the campus, it was just perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, let's back up a minute. Did you grow up Episcopalian or how did, I did not. 
Yeah. Talk about your, I grew up essentially Mm non-religious. So my family, um, I went to the occasional VBS at my grandmother's church or the occasional trip to the Catholic church because my father was Catholic, but did not grow up with a consistent faith life until I got to high school. When I was in high school, my friends invited me to go to their Baptist church. Mm. So from ninth grade on until halfway through college, I was 100% Baptist. I mean, I was a conservative fundamentalist kind of Baptist. Like Southern Baptist? Yes, very Uh much so. And um, did that all the way through college. Well, not all the way through half of college. And then when I got into college, a few different things came up along the way that made me really question my faith entirely. Mm. And I actually thought I was an agnostic, which I think is hilarious now because I was like the world's worst agnostic (laughs) because I was still like actively going to Bible study and church and praying in a prayer journal every day, but I was just angry. And so that's what I thought agnosticism was. Yeah. Um, And then it was out of that kind of season of anger that I was invited into a coffee shop Bible study um, Mm. that was hosted by the Episcopal Church. And this Bible study, you know, I loved coffee. And so I got a free cup of coffee from the priest. So I was pretty much sold. Boom. Um, but they were so comfortable with my anger. Mm. And I had never been in a place that called itself church where people were just so comfortable and unbothered by my anger. Mm. And so I was able to work it out, but work it out in community. Yeah. I love that. I've found that a lot about the Episcopal Church. A lot of people come angry from the more fundamentalist or conservative or evangelical, whatever, um, and find it a safe place to kind of question. That's the biggest. I mean, that's one of the biggest reasons I joined and got got into it. That and I love the sacraments and liturgy. Is that mm-hmm. a big important thing to you? Yeah, I, so I was, you know, a Baptist, was very active in church, very active in reading my Bible um, and studying the scriptures, but I always had this feeling like I didn't think that God was really close to me. Mm. Like I believed that God existed, I prayed, but I just never felt like God was close to me. Mm. And the first time I took the Eucharist, I went up to the altar and I was pretty hesitant. I went a few times to church and never went up to the altar because I didn't feel worthy to go up to that place. Mm. It is an interesting feeling to have now as I stand behind it. Right. 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 But to have this feeling to finally make it up to the altar, I receive the Eucharist. I drink the wine. I go back to my pew and I'm sitting in my pew and I can still feel it burning in my chest and I can still taste it on my lips. Mm. And I had this moment where I realized that Jesus met me at the altar and then went back to my seat with me. Mm. And it was really kind of the first moment of feeling like Jesus was with me, like not up in a sky or up on a cross, but just with me in Mm. this whole life thing. And that was, I think, probably one of the first earliest moments of me feeling called to the priesthood, even though I wouldn't have called it that. Right. Right. I knew that that was a feeling that I had never felt before and that I wanted other people to be able to feel. Yeah. And so that obviously in the Episcopal church or any sort of liturgical church, like the sacraments are a gateway to experiencing the the divine. Mm. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of times we believe that they come, God is present in those moments, in the ritual, right? God's mystical presence is there. Um, yeah, I feel the same way. There's something about taking Eucharist every time that I, I can't, like, if I don't, if I don't do that in a service, I don't, I don't know what we're doing anymore. Mm-hmm. What's the, what's the point of this? Like, I don't want to hear someone talking, someone singing, like those things are important, but to me, the Eucharist is like the central thing where all the meaning is like hanging out. Yeah. And just a God that would want to commune with us at all yeah. is a humbling a humbling thing to believe. And I just think all of the different things about our identity that involve our senses. Um, Incense is so very important to me because of the fact that um, I once heard it described as uh, incense is what prayer smells like. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like our prayers are lifted to God and that God kind of takes in our prayers with one breath. Right. Um, you know, oil on my head when I need to be anointed and I need to feel healing. I mean, that feels like healing balm to me. And these are ways that God was already present in my life. God was already taking in my prayers. God was already offering me healing. But because of my finite nature and me still being stuck in my body, I didn't feel that. I couldn't engage that. And so the sacraments are the the middle way, the conduit of how we actually get to acknowledge and receive the truth that is already happening. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love it. It's a whole full body. It's our, you know, it's a bodily experience. It's not just a spiritual and mind thing. It's also our bodies engaged with our senses. I I love all of that. And because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we know that Jesus felt all of those same things. Jesus felt his life, the life that we model in his own body. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, the thing that will never make me anything other than a Christian is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. I can't believe in any God that didn't feel what I feel. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm gifted by the fact that God would even care to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's beautiful. Talk to me a little bit about your call, your call to ministry and, and how you experienced it. You kind of gave a little, you know, piece of what you felt that first time taking the sacrament, but what, tell me about that journey and what that was like for you. Yeah. Um, when I was in my previous faith tradition, um, I would have been able to tell you at least for a short period of time that I felt called to ministry, but that it was made known to me that women were not called into that, that that was not something that women do within the church. There were roles for women, certainly, but none of them included preaching and teaching and the things that pastors did in that tradition. I wouldn't have said I wanted to celebrate, you know, the mysteries or anything because that wasn't a part of my tradition. Right, right. But I felt called to be a pastor and to be um, involved in ordained ministry. And that wasn't something that um, was available to me. Uh-huh. So I invested myself throughout college in trying to figure out, like, well, what is that other thing? Uh-huh. And I'd settled on being a teacher, um, which is nice now because I still get to do all of that within my priesthood. Right. But, you know, I'd settled on that. I was getting an English degree. I had a creative writing minor. And I was like two hours short of a public speaking minor as well. I decided oh. to not stay in school any longer. 
which looking back on it is so funny, you know, English degree where I'm analyzing texts uh-huh. for a bachelor's creative writing and public speaking is like the perfect background <laughs> to eventually be a priest. Yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't thinking of that when I was doing that, but God is awesome and like padded my resume for me practically. Right. Um, and then, you know, I entered the Episcopal church and my priest said one day, you know, we ordain women. And I'm like, neat. Thank you for sharing that with me. <laughs> and I just like keep going because I'm like, awesome. Because I, you know, I got confirmed when I was 21. I mean, I hate to say it, but my mind wasn't really on, you know, becoming a priest because I also think I had, you know, a pretty Protestant understanding of the priesthood and that I assumed that was for other people, holy people, people who are really, you know, living in monasteries or something. I don't know. My thought about the priesthood was not anything like who I currently am. And so I just thought, well, that's neat. You know, I'm so glad that women can be priests in this church. That's just an added star for our denomination. Mm -hmm. But then he invited me. He ended up being my sponsoring rector for a, discernment and seminary in the priesthood, he invited me to come to our diocesan council, which when I was in Alabama, it was held in Mobile during Mardi Gras. It was just a blast. (laughs) And so he said, you should come. It'll be a great way for you to get to know the Episcopal church. And I was like, that just sounds like a fun weekend. Like, of course I'll go to diocesan council. (laughs) And two of my friends had been elected to be delegates. So we were like, we're just going to have the best weekend ever. So we go down there and, you know, they do their opening mixer or whatever, and I walk in, and I just scan the room, and there are just women in collars dotted across the room. Wow. And I just, it was an incarnation of a calling that I had been feeling since I was 15. Uh. And it was no longer a theoretical concept. It was no longer this cool thing I learned in catechesis. It was a very real physical reality that women weren't just priests in theory. They were priests in the same room with me. Right. And so I went back and it was like my birthday, I think. And I said to my priest, I was ready to start discernment, wholly thinking that we would just, it would be a no, you know, like hopefully we'll just say no, Yeah. but I need to go ahead and do this obviously. Um, And of course it wasn't a no, it was, it was a yes. And things moved forward from there. Uh Wow. That's really cool. It's so powerful to see a woman in the pulpit, a woman like consecrating Eucharist, just like you said, a woman in the collar. Like I can't tell you just what it, what it's done to me in terms of just healing from church trauma, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, cause I wasn't raised ever seeing women being priests or pastors either here in Oklahoma. And, um, it's just been, Cause you know, I grew also like in my Catholic education, I learned that to be in persona Christi is what the priest is. You are the embodiment of Christ for the people kind of in a mystical way. And there's always like this mystery in Catholicism. That's like their favorite word, which I also like love, but to see like a woman embodying Christ in the priestly duties is, um, I don't even have a good word for it, word for it. Like it's healing, it's empowering, it's like beautiful, it's 
life giving. I don't know, like this, you know, all these words. It's just it, it completes the image of God for me. Maybe is is another helpful way to think about it. So, well, I think it's so important to me in a way that makes me uncomfortable that I have to be who I am. Mm-hmm. I think there ends up being a lot of pressure around, especially for women in the priesthood, trying to figure out who it is that you're supposed to be in order to really be a good priest. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to a social a few weeks ago and um, I saw someone that I'd seen before we'd met in a different context. And I said, Oh, I'm Erin. You know, I'm the new priest over here at, at St. Luke's. And she said, Oh, I forgot, you know, you just, you don't look like or carry yourself like a priest. Hmm. And it's like a social event. And I had just had this moment where I am just full of shame. because I'm thinking, gosh, I don't carry myself like a priest or like, should I dress differently? Should I do my hair differently? Like, what is it about me that, makes you not see a priest when you look at me because by virtue of the fact that I'm a priest, however I look, looks like a priest. Is there a priest look? Like, is that, I know that, but I also, in that moment, you don't call on what you know about yourself. You call on, on your reaction. And so I kind of, I'm processing it with some people and someone mentioned to me, you know, how grateful they were that their kids had grown up with an image of priesthood that didn't look. Right. Like an older white man. Right. Because we have the ability to shape a generation to never say that. Right. Because if you talk to people who have been at churches where I serve, I am one of the images of priesthood that they know. Right. And the problem is that we have so many contexts where they don't know any image. Right. It isn't an older white man. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with being an older white male priest. I know tons of them and I will. Love to death, my friends, my mentors, my bishops, and, and and very important people in the Christian faith. Absolutely. But having multiple images to call on so that you're able to look at someone and not say, Oh, you don't look like a priest. Yeah. Because you don't look like my preconceived man of what a priest should be. Yeah. Yeah. I one time had somebody um tell me I was too pretty to be a preacher. <laughs> kind of similar like it's calling out my womanness for sure my my gender and saying like this isn't the right this these two things don't go together which is crazy mm-hmm. obviously being a, a you know both of us being gifted theologians and people that care about doing god's work in the world and obviously you you have been called and confirmed and all the things ordained priests. Right. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of communities and people have affirmed your call and like, you know, you've gone through all the things I hope to do that one day too, but it's, it's tough when, when you have other pockets of society that have only, like you said, had that one image and it's such a, it's only half the image. Right. And the, the challenge for me is, I can be angry about that. I can be frustrated. Um, I can be snotty about it. Those are all things I'm capable of. (laughs) Um, Or I can keep showing up to pulpits and altars and places where people may be a little disarmed by who shows up in a collar behind it. Right. 
And that's what is the gift of it. I mean, the gift is feeling like I know people who are grateful that their kids look at me and think, oh, that's what a priest looks like. Right. And I would rather deal with any and all of the comments that I might receive that are like, oh, wow, you're young. How did you become a priest? Or, gosh, you don't look like a priest. I can deal with all of that because what that takes from me is not even close to what I receive in, in blessedness from seeing these children or seeing these younger people who are able to grow up with a different image. Right. Right. That, that definitely answers that question I had on here. What, what is it, what's important about being a woman for you doing mm. this work? Is there anything else that you would add to that? I mean, I think what's important too is inviting other people into understanding themselves as ministers mm. and not only uplifting an ordained ministry. It's easy for me to talk yeah. about the challenges of being a 31-year-old female priest, but I was thinking today about this moment I had um, when I was in Waco, we had a school and we did these week cha- weekday chapels at the school and we always did birthday prayers. And we did a birthday prayer and it happened to be my birthday. And so I was like, well, this is neat, you know, and this girl came forward. I think she was in fourth grade and it was her birthday. And so I said a little prayer and I put, you know, did a cross on her forehead and she was about to leave. And I said, you know, today's my birthday. Would you say a prayer for me? Yeah. And um, she said, oh, oh, okay. I mean, she was obviously shocked that I asked right. her to do it. And so I kind of got down and she put the little sign of the cross on my forehead. And I thanked her. And we all sang happy birthday. And she sat down. And it wasn't premeditated. I just was like, oh, this will be fun. And, you know, I can sort of receive a birthday prayer as well. Because children know how to pray. It's not any less, you know, exciting and, and less of a blessing from a child. But her teacher came up to me later that day and she said, you know, that girl came up to me and asked me if she could ever be a priest. Wow. And I thought, gosh, we can spend our whole lives planning how we're going to create disciples, how we're going to, you know, put together systems and programs for Christian formation. And then we can have a random moment where we just ask a kid to say a prayer for us and that can be how a child learns that they have the ability to become a part of a male-dominated workforce especially a male-dominated calling right right so trying to create those opportunities and be intentional about that is really important to me yeah how about like imaging god as female and we've talked a little bit about it, but is that something you try to do in your ministry? I know the liturgy is pretty tight in terms of what we priests can and can't do up there, but is that something you've thought about or would want to see the church make changes about? I know it's come up in convention about language in the Book of Common Prayer um, and trying to make things either more gender neutral or using both male and female like how do you feel about that you know I've followed general convention pretty closely just for obvious reasons and um listen to sort of the different arguments about changing the um gendered language around God and I feel like I can receive all of the um reasons why we should why we should offer you know a feminine image of God I've also never served in a context where that was being asked for 
And one of the things that happened for me in priesthood is it, it removed me from a lot of the equation in some senses, because it wasn't about what I want. Right. It's about what will facilitate a deeper spiritual life for the congregation I'm in. Uh-huh. And that's not to say that there weren't individuals within those congregations that might have really liked that, but it wasn't a pressing need. I mean, there are some places where this is a pastoral pressing need that it is challenging for them to have to call God Father. Yeah. And I can respect that. I just have never been in a situation where I felt like someone was um, saying to me that that was their reality. Uh-huh. I think when I think of, you know, Sophia, this idea of wisdom, the first images I conjure up are, first of all, just of Mary. Yeah. Um, I love Mary. I love the fact that something that we call true within our faith is the fact that, um, you know, God had to be brought into the world through Mary. Right. Right. So Mary is bearing the savior of the world in her body. Right. And then what blows my mind is that Jesus dies and Jesus is resurrected and his resurrection, he is reborn on the lips of women, Mm -hmm. right? Born by the body of Mary reborn through the proclamation of the resurrection by the women at the tomb who showed up there because of their lower status as people who needed to clean bodies. Right. So for me, when I think of, you know, the feminine imagery and the divine, I just think of the fact that of course women are supposed to be preachers and conduits of, you know, the gospel that we proclaim. It's all throughout scripture. And that requires courage ability in order to be able to do that. But to me, that's, you know, the divine image of the Holy spirit working both within scripture and still now Mm -hmm. um, to help us connect with divinity. Yeah. What would you say you feel like your goal is with your vocation as a priest? So I read that question on your primer. Um, (laughs) I don't have any, I don't have any like non meta level answers because (laughs) I really, it's just, I don't have anything concrete. I can give you my three year plan. I don't think it's helpful. Um, No, I think that my vocation is essentially that of a storyteller. Mm. I have an English degree. I have a creative writing minor. Um, I feel like I writ large study stories. I gather up stories from books, from news articles, from people that I meet. I love hearing a person's story. I want to hear where a person is from, and I really want to try to remember it because I feel like that's part of how we honor other people is through receiving their story and then being someone who can carry that story on and preaching is storytelling for me. It is telling the story of scripture alongside the story of who we are and the individuals that we meet. Um, Pastoral care is telling the story that we believe that death is not the end. All of our liturgies tell stories that tell the story of Jesus being with us in the Eucharist. They tell the story of Jesus resurrecting us when we die. They tell the story of us being resurrected in the waters of baptism. So for me, I am just an aggregator of stories. And that happens to also be an act of, an an act that is connected to divinity and to God. Yeah. I love that. I love that so much. Um, Last question. 
on this part. Where do you where do you encounter the divine the most or right now? I have sort of high level answers for this. Um, the first place I always go is hope. Um, I think that hope is how I wake up in the morning. Mm. I have to believe that there's something just right across the way. Yeah. Because it is what draws me into the next thing. And sometimes the next thing is the next five minute segment of my life. And sometimes the next thing is the next call that I'm going to have that I just like, and I just started a new call or it could be the next meeting, the next conversation. Um, the next thing I don't know is about to be my next thing. You know, that hope that there's something just right up around the bend that God has, has designed for me to enter is what, what really pulls me forward. And then aside from that, I would say, um, nature and being outside. I didn't really know how important that was to me until I lived in Dallas for three years and felt like the occasional tree was like my, you know, only experience of being outside. And now I live in a community. Yes. Oh, or, you know, no offense, but like pots just weren't doing it for me. You know, right. a potted garden wasn't doing it. <laughs> but I live in a place now that we have a, um, a park with walking trails. And there's parts of it where you're actually just surrounded by trees and it's on water. And there's geese and ducks and turtles. And I was walking there just the other day and two deer just ran out from the field. And it just gives me this feeling like I'm not in a community where other people are. Yeah, and I think of nature as being its own form of sacramentality. Oh yeah, because it's that tangible presence that is a reminder of yeah. the pure creative power of God. Right, right. Yeah, I can't go too long. I mean, luckily my job is outside. Most of, like a lot mm-hmm. of my job, especially coaching, is outside, and I just love it. I love it so much. But I also like yearn for like going out in the country and going to the mountains and spending time with God in that, that form. Yeah. Um, and I'm an extrovert. And so I don't think I ever thought that I would be the person who just really wanted to be like alone in the woods every now and then. <laughs> so things like a walking trail in Ada, Oklahoma are really helpful because yeah. you're safe and alone, which yeah. is something that I like. Yeah, there you go. Well, thanks so much for sharing this more personal side of the podcast. Thanks again, Reverend Aaron, for sharing your story with us. Join us next week for Aaron and I's conversation about sermon writing and preaching. You can find Aaron on social media at the Rev EJ on Twitter and Instagram, and her most recent written work at www.aaronjeanward.com. And let me tell y'all, she is one of the most entertaining accounts to follow if you enjoy some good church humor. So go check her out. Thanks for tuning in, y'all. And and as always, please rate and review and subscribe to Theosophia on iTunes. And follow us on all the social media platforms. Have a great week. Peace.